The central or the, the jumping off point for today's message is one of my favorite scriptures out of Matthew chapter 11. And it says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Bye, Micah. It's my hope and desire today that as we look at five different places in which Jesus says, come to me, that this verse will come alive for you and become your favorite verse or one of your favorite verses. The first thing that we look at when we talk about Jesus said, come to me, is he said, come to me when you're grieving. And uh, you probably noticed that Um, I'm wearing a green tie today. And um, the green tie is Philip's tie. You see, three years ago, a little over three years ago, Dan and Kirsten lost a son, Philip. I bought this tie for Philip's funeral. And I only wear it on special occasions. And for our, unfortunately, family funerals, which we've had way too many in the last couple of years. I wear it on special occasions because it's special, just like Philip was very special. Jesus understands our grief. He exhibited it with his friend Lazarus when Lazarus died. Lazarus died. In the story, we read that moments before Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, that he wept. And you have the scripture verse there out of John chapter 11. It says, When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. And then Jesus wept. Shortest verse, sentence in all of scripture. Jesus cried because he lost a friend and because of those around Lazarus and how his death affected them. Now given Jesus' divinity, this incident portrays God's identification with human pain. Jesus knew that Lazarus was not going to remain in the grave. Still, the heartbreak of his friends brought Jesus himself to tears. It is a cliche that when we say when a child hurts, mom and dad hurts even more. The same is true with God. When we hurt, God hurts with us. He hurts for us. When grief batters our hearts and wets our eyes, God hurts because we hurt. But there's more to God's grief than just that. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize or empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. The call to come to me when you're grieving is a call for comfort. Jesus takes time to comfort Mary and Martha. He provides the same comfort 
for you and I. It does not change the situation that you're in. It simply changes your perspective and your attitude towards your facing. May God help each of us to be comforted when we face those challenges. And may we become comforters to others. Because you know, one of the things that we're called upon is to gird one another up in our most holy faith. So that when someone within our midst faces pain and suffering, we're there with them. You know, if you took the first two chapters of Job and didn't read the rest, you'd be real happy with what his friends did. His friends came and they sat with him for seven days, didn't say a word. Mark wasn't with them. I was just kidding. I'm sorry, Mark. My wife would be really angry if she heard me say that. Don't give her the tape. Unfortunately, the story of Job goes beyond chapter 2 when his three friends show the sympathy that they did. Later on, they began to question. and Once they opened their mouths, they got themselves into trouble. But we're called upon to gird one another up, to comfort one another. So the first thing that we're called to do is to come when we're grieving. The second thing is to come when we're lost. During Jesus' ministry, great crowds of outsiders came to listen to Jesus. These were men and women who, whether it was through their family associations, their occupations, their social circles, their lifestyles, were looked down upon with immense contempt by the more rigid and sanctimonious scribes and Pharisees. Having been scorned by religious crowds as hopelessly lost, these outsiders found that while Christ's teachings never excused or made allowances for their sin in any form, his message was empathetic and loving and full of hope for the hopeless. The religious teachers of Israel were indignant and enraged at Christ's acceptance and apparent preference to sit with the sinners. In answer to their grumbling and moaning, Christ presents three parables as vindication of his actions. The three parables demonstrate a number of truths that we should all take note of. In these parables, we see the condition or state of those away from God We observe God's great love and empathy towards the sinner, and we get a glimpse of heaven as a scene upon the restoration of a soul. As Jesus moves through these stories, he is placing a greater and greater emphasis upon the value of the thing that is lost. In the first illustration, we're talking about the lost sheep. He leaves the 99 and he goes for the one. The second illustration is the lost silver. One coin lost out of ten. The final illustration is the lost son, or the prodigal son, one of two. In the first two stories, the objects missing were an animal and material. In the final illustration, the object missing was human. Each time the object that was lost grows in value and importance. Jesus is trying to tell us that every soul is precious to him, even yours. 
This includes the story of Zacchaeus. Now, um, if your notes for the second point refer to John 19, that is inaccurate. It is Luke 19. And Nancy was kind enough, with a little bit of assistance from Bonnie, to make me aware of this on Friday, that my notes to her were inaccurate. But let's read through this just briefly. Jesus enters Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector. He was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and he climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him. Since Jesus was coming that way, when Jesus reached that spot, he looked up and he said, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house. So he came down at once and he welcomed him gladly. Now Zacchaeus' response to Jesus' call was to come to me, was to obey. He got down out of the tree and he walked him to his home, welcomed him. The reaction of the religious leaders was he was going to be the guest of a tax collector, a sinner. In Max Licato's book, He Still Moves Stones, he asked this question about these Bible stories. For these and other similar ones like them, tell me why are these stories in the Bible? Why are the Gospels full of such hopeless people? Though their situations vary, their conditions do not. They're trapped and rejected. They have nowhere to turn. On their lips, a desperate prayer. In their hearts, a desolate dream. And in their hands, a broken rope. But before the eyes of Jesus, a never-say-die Galilean who majors in stepping in when others are stepping out. There he is. Again, I ask, why are these stories in the Bible? Why did God leave us one tale after another of wounded lives being restored? Did he think that what would make us feel better, that people were worse than we were? Could we just be grateful of what took place in the past? Or to look back in amazement on what Jesus did. No, no, no. A thousand times no. The purpose of these stories is not to tell us what Jesus did. Their purpose is to tell us what Jesus does. He's not done yet. The things that he did, the people that he met, the people that he healed, he does today. And you're all evidence of that. Many of you, if we gave you the opportunity, you'd tell us stories about how God moved in your life. In Romans 15, 4, it says, the Apostle Paul wrote, everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. That word again, hope. So Jesus says, to the lost, come to me. The third thing that we look at when we talk about when Jesus says come to me is come to me when you face addiction. 
Addiction is defined as a condition in which a person engages in use of a substance or in a behavior for which the rewarding effects provide a compelling incentive to repeatedly pursue the behavior despite detrimental consequences. Now, you know that was written by a room full of psychologists, but the point is well taken. The fact is, we all know what addiction is. We've all experienced it. I have a client who just turned 29 that has overdosed seven times on heroin. In the most recent circumstance, he uh, took the heroin and got into a car and overdosed with his car running in the garage. Fortunately, the car was in park. And a neighbor happened to see and after a few minutes said, you know, this just doesn't look right. So he called the police. The police came. Three Narcans later, they brought him back. Now I don't know if he's at the point where he's done. He says he is. Talks a good game. But he hasn't come to Jesus yet. We've had that conversation with him and his dad. Fortunately, his parents were spared the funeral that would have taken place. Addictions come in many forms. They're not just substances, as we spoke of earlier. But there's behaviors that are just as destructive all by themselves. Pornography, gambling, spending. You get the picture. We look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10. It says, there's no temptation that has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Now I need to tell you, I think God's perspective on what I can endure and what his are a little bit different But the key to this verse is he's provided a way out. He's provided a way out. Paul shares his addiction in Romans chapter 7. Now as hard as this scripture is to read, sometimes it's even harder to understand, but I think you'll get the point. This is Romans seven fourteen through 20. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate to do, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who does it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that the good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do good that I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. 
Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. Paul gives us the perfect description of the inner conflict that takes place in us with sin and addiction. The fact is, we don't want to do things that we end up doing. The fact is, we know what's right, but we don't follow it. Because we feed our sinful nature instead of our godly nature. One more personal story, I apologize. My father was an alcoholic. And by God's grace, he lived to be sober the last 36 years of his life. He was a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. Oh, I just gave it away. Um, One of the things about AA is that they have a a 12-step program in which each person that commits to be part of the organization works their way through. And the first is to agree in a higher power. Well, my dad not only agreed upon a higher power, but of Jesus. And it was with Jesus' help and a lot of his friends from AA that he remained sober those last 36 years. And I remember asking him one time, I was much younger, as he got ready ready on a holiday with everybody gathered around at home, I have five older brothers, so you can sense what the chaos was like. He got up and he put his coat on. He had taken a phone call. And he was on his way out the door. And I said, where are you going? He said, well, we found a bed for a guy that's sitting in a bar on Liberty Street. And I'm going to take him down to... I'm going to take him down to Rosary Hall. Rosary Hall was and still is a detox center in Cleveland, part of St. Vincent Charity. And I said, but everybody's here. Why, Why do you have to go out and do this? He said, well, he said, somebody came and did it for me. And I remember that night when my dad was sitting in the living room can of Genesee in his hand. Two guys came. I didn't know who they were. And he left. And ever since that moment, he was changed till the time of his death in 2011. God provides a way out. If you're struggling with addiction, he says, come to me. Because he'll provide help. The fourth thing that we look at when we talk about come to me is to come to me when you're lonely. Loneliness is no respecter of persons. Everyone has experienced loneliness, including the rich and the poor, educated and uneducated. If you're lonely or you struggled with loneliness in the past, you're not alone. Everyone experiences loneliness. You turn on the radio if you listen to secular music at all, especially country and western. Next to the topic of love, the most sung about aspect is loneliness. I won't bore you with verses of songs because there's not the time. But here's the good news. You don't have to remain lonely. It can actually be a catalyst towards change and growth. 
Dr. Oliver Robinson, who is from the University of Greenwich in uh, London, found that feelings of insecurity and loneliness can cause us to make change. It effectuates change. And these feelings of loneliness are indeed good for us. Film critic Roger Ebert wrote, What do lonely people desire? Companionship, love, recognition, camaraderie, distraction, encouragement, change, feedback. But these things just don't come like Amazon at the front door. You have to work for them. How can you overcome loneliness? Well, there's two things that I'd like you to think about. The first is you need to uh, build a deeper relationship with Jesus Christ. God wants to have that close personal relationship with you. If you don't have a good relationship with God, with Jesus, it's not because he's gone anywhere. If there's any distance that's been brought between the two of you, you have created the distance. Jesus said, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. There's only one relationship which truly satisfies. All other relationships will come up short of your expectations. But if you put your hand in God's, he will not only never fail you or leave you, he will never forsake you. But that type of relationship takes time and you have to invest the energy to develop that type of relationship. That's why we encourage people to come to Wednesday night Bible study. There's so many opportunities for growth. We had a great discussion the other night about Job. We learned some things about Job that we didn't know, yet we'd all read the scripture many times. This week, we're going to talk about David. You should come and join us. Jesus knew loneliness as most of his friends and followers abandoned him at the cross. God knows your loneliness, and he's willing to meet that need in your life. So come to him, share in him that wound and help with healing. For just as God was there with Jesus on the cross, so he too is with you. And the second aspect of that solution for loneliness is to focus your energy and attention on others. If you want to get through loneliness, you've got to pour your life into others. Instead of waiting for someone to fill that emptiness, you need to step out. That's the beauty of ministry. There's lots of opportunities. Friday night, I met with a whole bunch of people. We took more food than three full buildings of Project Hope could eat in one night. We kept bringing food in. And JP and Wes, who were the volunteers that were there on Friday night, they kept going, is this for tonight? It's a small opportunity. But for those that came and helped deliver the food, it had a practical outcome. If you're lonely, get involved. Sometimes continuing to do something outside of your comfort zone will help you build relationship with others. 
You know, I've watched many people in this congregation blossom and grow in their faith. He's downstairs so I can talk about him. Jeff Jockin is one of those people. He comes with, a, uh, and I'll use this term, a child's heart every Wednesday night, just dying to get a morsel of what God's word has to say to him. I could go around the room and talk, talking about people that I've, I've been with. The inspiration that Logan is. I love to see his face when I'm up here singing. I wish you could see how hard he works to try to stand to sing. When Candy says, stand with us and sing, Logan's the first one to try to get himself up. Now poor Kim and Bud are trying to (laughs) navigate with him on that. But my point is, there's growth in that relationship, but you have to make yourself available. 1 Peter 5, 7 says, cast your anxieties upon him because he cares for you. So if you're lonely, cry out to Jesus, come to me, and he will find rest for you. Finally, the last aspect that we're going to look at is come to me, all who are broken. Relationships are hard. They take care and effort. Even the best relationships are challenged by harsh words, disappointment, indifference, fear, betrayal. If you walk with somebody long enough, they will disappoint you. Just a few weeks ago, Pastor Evan completed a three-part series on marriage. In the second of the series, he used uh, uh, the words from the song by Casting Crowns called Broken Together. The chorus is so telling, and I want to share it with you. Maybe you and I were never meant to be complete. Could we just be broken together? If you bring your shattered dreams, I'll bring mine. Could healing still be spoken and save us. The only way we'll last forever is to be broken together. Earlier this week, and I see she must be back with the baby, uh, Kathy Barham posted something on Facebook. Is that feeding back or is it just me? Okay. I'm hearing an echo, that's all. And it was just such a profound statement that I I wrote it down and I wanted to share it with you because I thought it really fit for what we're talking about when it talks about being broken. She said, when you wait until someone is completely broken before helping them, don't be surprised when their cracks still show. Jesus died to mend our broken relationship with God. If God sent his only begotten son and to die on our behalf, how much more will he heal our brokenness and our broken relationships? Psalm 147.3 says, He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. Psalm 34 says, 18 says, The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. If you desire to repair a broken heart, 
a broken relationship, then the first thing you need to do is ask God to step in. The second thing that you need to do is to ask forgiveness. To go before God and say, search me and know my heart. See if there be any offensive way in me. To create in me a clean and a pure heart because if your heart's not right, how are you going to make amends or heal a broken relationship with somebody else? And then finally, a scripture verse that I've always enjoyed, and that is to achieve to live peaceably with all men. It's Romans twelve eighteen. You know, I work in a profession where uh, adversarial relationships pop up at every turn. And... Um, as a conservative, for me it's even worse in my profession because I'm a vast majority of the attorneys that practice. So when I'm in a room full of attorneys and we're working on cases or waiting to meet with a judge, inevitably it gets around to politics. And oh my goodness, I try to bite my tongue. But like Mark, I just can't keep my mouth shut. And eventually... I'm knee-deep in it with six attorneys fighting with me over why the picture of the little girl who was supposedly removed from her mother was not what they portrayed it to be. But I digress. The fact is that in every pew in this church today are broken people, broken hearts with broken relationships, So I'm here to tell you that there is hope for the helpless. There's rest for the weary. There's love for the broken heart. There's grace and forgiveness. There's mercy and healing. He'll meet you wherever you are. Cry out to Jesus. The central point of today's message is at the bottom of your notes. Life is hard, but Jesus is stronger. To prayer. Father, we thank you for the Comforter, for Jesus and the fact that he is there for us to be able to come when we're grieving, when we're lonely, when we're facing sin, when we're facing challenges and brokenness in our lives. Father, there are many that didn't come forward today that we know are still facing challenges. May you meet them where they are. May you comfort them. May you encourage them. May you help them to grow closer to you and to one another. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.